If there was ever a sobering text, I think we just read it together. This text has frightened many people, especially those verses at the end there. But as we'll see, the people who are frightened or worried or anxious about this text, those are never the ones that should be. We'll see what that means as we unpack this, because every scripture has a context, and we'll discover what this means as we understand what the backdrop of those last couple of verses are. But to give you an idea of where we're going to end up, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something you do one time. It's not something you do by accident, but it it is a perpetual condition of the heart. We'll see what we mean in a few moments. But let's begin by looking at this text together at the start in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Similar to other healings we have seen so far already in this gospel, uh, Jesus has brought a demon-oppressed man, Jesus heals him, Uh, the man is restored, and the people are amazed, as they should be. A miracle just took place in front of them. And the people asked if he was the son of David, a messianic title. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 indicates that the son of David, the Messiah, would come from David's lineage, which means he would come from his family. So at this point, the people are still questioning, can this be the son of David? Is this the one who is to come? They're still questioning. They haven't made up their mind about Jesus yet, but they're asking the right questions, which is always a good thing. The Pharisees, however, had already made up their minds about who Jesus was, and their conclusions weren't good, as we see in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they they said, it is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebub was a, or Beelzebub in some of your translations, was a name of the, that the Israelites used for Satan. It was derived from one of the Canaanite deities in the area uh, whose name meant exalted Lord. But the Israelites uh, did a little play on words with this thing that changed its name from uh, its original pronunciation to Beelzebul, which means Lord. instead of exalted Lord, they changed it to mean Lord of Dung or Lord of the Flies. Because that's where flies are drawn to. <laughs> dung. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, things we're not supposed to say in church, right? <laughs> but that's what, it's, that's what it means. And such a, the antagonism that the Israelites had towards this false Canaanite deity uh, made for a fitting name for the enemy of our souls, of Satan, who stands for complete uncleanness and filth himself. So it was an appropriate uh, appropriation, if you will, But this was the title that Jesus is being accused of being associated with. So make no mistake, this is quite a a vivid insult towards our Lord and Savior. But in doing so, think about it. The Pharisees are actually admitting something pretty amazing here. 
They admit that Jesus is doing miracles. That's, that's pretty astonishing when you think about it. Could, could you imagine what it would take to convince one of you guys that there's somebody out on Broadway doing miracles? What would it take to convince you that that's true? That, that, it's pretty significant when you think about it. But when even Jesus' enemies are forced to admit that the reality that this person they don't like is doing miracles, that's pretty astonishing. You know, when this happens, when, some, when even your enemy is willing to admit something amazing about you, that's called a hostile witness. And in court, it's considered one of the most credible witnesses you can bring to the stand. When somebody you don't like will testify on your account and say, yeah, I don't like that guy, but he wasn't at that crime scene. That says something amazing. And yet, however, they do not attribute this miracle to the glory of God but to the power of Satan. Why? How, how did they come to such a conclusion? Are there different colored mists that come out when you do a miracle from above or below? I don't think so. <laughs> Certainly not. The only criteria the Pharisees used to make this stunning conclusion is their jealousy, their spitefulness, their lack of humility, their anger, and their hatred of being corrected. That's what caused them to come to this conclusion. Not because of anything else Jesus was doing. But knowing their thoughts, knowing that this is happening, Jesus continues in verse 25, saying, He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. <laughs> I once read a, about a house that sat on two different foundations. I don't know why they built it that way, but that's why they did. And... When the new owner took over and they looked at it, they, they saw the opposing forces were crushing parts of the house and the, the structural integrity was bent. The thing couldn't stand. They had to knock over the whole thing, bust up the foundation and start at step one to rebuild that house. It was good for nothing. So if even a house cannot stand with two, forces work, two opposing forces working against it, what sense does Satan casting out Satan make? I mean, what general who desires to win a war decides to fight with his own troops? It doesn't make sense, which is the point that Jesus is offering. I mean, Satan might be wicked, but he is no fool. So, that has to be taken into consideration here. Furthermore, Jesus essentially says, if, if I'm using Satan to cast out Satan, what power are you guys using? You guys in your supposed exorcisms that you guys are doing. What power are you doing it from? <laughs> Jewish literature has some strange rituals for supposedly casting out evil spirits. And I say supposedly because we have no record of them ever being successful. <sighs> But they were trying nevertheless. But even giving the benefit of the doubt, if they were successful, how are they doing it? 
Spurgeon once said, uh, every, uh, he said, envy causes persons to condemn in one what they approve in another. Envy causes persons to condemn in one what they approve in another. He's exposing their hypocrisy here. And he's doing so because if the Pharisees are wrong, there's only one other explanation, and Jesus points it out in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Quite simple, if Jesus is undeniably doing miracles, and the miracles he is doing are fulfilling Scripture, like if you read Isaiah 35, what Jesus is doing here is textbook to that text, then it, may, and it makes no sense for him to be doing it out of the power of Satan. What is the inescapable conclusion that Jesus is doing this by God's power? And if he's doing it by God's power, the kingdom of God is upon them and they have chosen to be on the wrong side, standing opposed to God in what they are doing. And I'm harping on this for a reason. It'll make sense in a minute. But Jesus is not only not of Satan, but he's also standing against him. In verse 29, we see, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. (laughs) And admittedly, that verse can appear confusing at first glance, but once you understand who is who, the analogy perfectly lines up with what we've been reading. Jesus had just cast away a demon earlier in this paragraph and has been doing so all over Israel, pushing back against the influence of Satan in the region. Jesus takes that context and pictures himself as a thief, plundering the house and kingdom of Satan, showing himself as the victor, conquering this character. One commentator explains Jesus' point brilliantly. I'm going to do a direct quote. He said, Haven't I demonstrated before all of Israel my power over Satan and his kingdom of evil? Haven't I demonstrated beyond all doubt that my authority is higher than Satan's? Haven't I cleansed people out of every kind of disease and freed them from every kind of demonic control and oppression? Haven't I demonstrated my authority over both sin and death? Haven't I rescued souls from hell? The very fact that I have been able to successfully invade Satan's territory is proof that he is bound and powerless to resist. Who could have such power and authority but God himself? Who but God could enter the very house of Satan and successfully bind him and carry off his property? I have shown you I can defeat Satan and a legion of demonic hosts at at will. How could I be anything else but your divine Messiah? Now, a few quotes leave me speechless, but all I can say to that is amen. So with Jesus setting that record straight, painting himself in the right right sense, Jesus begins what I call the call to action section of this rebuttal that he's doing to this accusation of the Pharisees. Where in verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice there is no middle ground with Jesus. You're either for or against. 
There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And you don't have to oppose Christ to be against him. You might just be on the team that does. You know, I'm not exactly a sports guy at all. And those of you guys who know me know that that's the case. But um, when I went for my undergrad down in South Jersey, I made a strategic but ignorant error by packing a New York area sports team t-shirt with me. Now, I didn't realize this, but Atlanta County is very much a Philly sports team area. Almost violently so. <laughs> but I, I, it was a t-shirt that fit, so I packed it. That's, that's what I did at 18. So, anyway, I didn't know that, and I was quite surprised by the looks that I got on campus and the intensity of which some people confronted me. Saying, you're wearing the wrong colors. Get out of here. What's up with you? And I had nothing to do against Philly. I don't even, I'm not even a sports guy. But I happened to be passively wearing the wrong team colors. Unwittingly, but I found myself apparently at odds with the people around me. And if that's not a perfect illustration, I don't know what is for what happens spiritually. Because again, there are two destinations Heaven and hell. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. We see this bifurcation all over scripture. And there are two choices to come with Jesus. There's to accept him or to reject him. And to, choose to, and to not choose to accept him today means that today you choose to reject him. Doesn't mean you can't change your mind tomorrow, but that's your choice today. And you're wearing the wrong team colors, as I certainly was. Jesus has not given us the option to be somewhat committed to him either. You've been reading these claims. If you've been following us for any length of time, Jesus has never called his church or any of his followers to passively follow him, but to actively choose who you will serve. Because as C.S. Lewis so brilliantly put it, I've said it a hundred times already, I know, but Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all creation. He has not given us the option to passively follow him as a good moral teacher. He deserves all or nothing from us. The only sin, and when you know him, and you really understand him, and the Holy Spirit has revealed him to you, there is no other choice than to follow him wholeheartedly. The Pharisees, however, made their decision on this issue, and they chose poorly. As we come to our head of this, the main thrust of this text in verse 31, that says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, before we jump to our conclusions, what, let, let's think critically about this. What is the sin that the Pharisees have been committing in this text that would lead to such a strong rebuttal from Jesus. 
You don't have to say it out loud, but think about it. What have they done? The root cause of it, of their words and their choices, was having such a hard heart towards Jesus and such a complete rejection of him that with the evidence staring them right in the face that he is God and the Messiah, the the son of David, not only do they reject him, but they say that he is from Satan rather than from God. That's about as complete a rejection you could come to. And it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because John 15, 26 says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus. The Spirit primarily has two missions, to sanctify believers like ourselves and to lead not yet Christians to Jesus, to convict them of their sins and show them their need for a Savior. And the person who passionately and decisively is steadfast, resolute in their heart to reject the work of the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven because in the hardness of their own hearts, they will not allow themselves to be forgiven. That's how this works. It's not that you've done something so bad that you cannot come back from it. It's that you will not come under any circumstances. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is not coming to the Savior to be saved. And if you have a heart like the Pharisees, who would literally attribute the works, the good and beautiful, selfless works of Christ to Satan, they would never come to Jesus, much less come in a spirit of humility and ask for forgiveness of their sins. That is why this sin cannot be forgiven. That's the reason why. Notice this is not something you do one time and you're out. Nor, uh, nor is this a one-time rejection of the gospel as if it only works the first time that you hear it. It is a repeated, unchanging, stubborn attitude of the heart. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, you will read of the Bereans that when the gospel first was presented to them, they searched the scriptures to find out if it was true, and that was commended of them. It's, it's a good thing to ask questions and be, if, to make sure you believe what you really believe. But that's very different than having this attitude of the heart that we're talking about. And nor is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit one really bad sin that you did or or anything like that. Because Jesus says that any sin can be forgiven right here in these verses. In Luke 23, Jesus is being crucified and he called out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If the people who literally crucified Jesus can be forgiven, I think your sins can be forgiven too. So if you're concerned about this, if you're worried or if you've ever thought to yourself, oh no, have I committed that sin? This is not talking about you. This is, you're the, one of the last people that should be worried about this verse because that indicates you have a soft heart towards God. You don't want to sin against him. You don't want to be unpleasing to him. And this verse is about having a hard heart. And you've indicated to me that you have a soft one, if that expresses your heart. 
So what does it look like to be this hard-hearted towards the Holy Spirit's leading? Well, for one, I mean, there's no better example than attributing the works of Jesus to Satan. That's a pretty good indicator right there. But it, it also looks like John chapter 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And at the end of the chapter, the Pharise- instead of rejoicing over the amazing miracle that Jesus had done, the Pharisees had made plans to kill Jesus. And it gets worse. In chapter 12, after that, they went to kill Lazarus too. Because he can't, wouldn't stop testifying about that Jesus guy. Apparently led a lot of people to him. What a powerful testimony. That's what this looks like. <laughs> Acts chapter 7, verse 51 is a perfect example too. That's one you guys should mark. Acts, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, where Stephen is about to be martyred. And a leader of the early church. And he says this to his soon-to-be murderers. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so also you do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That describes the heart of the person who commits this type of sin. Where instead of having a love for God and a love for his people, they have hatred and murder in their hearts. And quite frankly, that hatred and murder doesn't always stay in the heart. Often it overflows like it did to Stephen. And he was stoned to death uh, moments after he said that. But we need to keep some perspective on this because we have to be very careful accusing or believing somebody we know may have been committing this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because only God knows the heart for sure. Because if you guys did open up with me to Acts chapter 7, just go a few verses down with me for a second to Acts chapter 8 verse 1 where it says, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul of Tarsus was numbered among those who Stephen is describing, you stick-neft people. But that person we now know better as Paul the Apostle, the author of some two-thirds of the New Testament by a book number. (laughs) But he was one of those people Stephen was calling stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and mind. But even he could be forgiven and be restored to a right relationship with God and live a vibrant Christian life categorized by love until the day he was eventually beheaded by the same type of people he used to be. So my point in bringing this up is this. There is hope for everyone. Even the people who seem to be the chief of sinners. Because that's what Paul would later call himself. He knew how close to that line he was dancing. But even he could be restored and find forgiveness. Therefore, there's hope for everyone here as well. And includes the ones who you know who look like they want 
nothing to do with God, who look like the most hard-hearted people you know. Because let me tell you, some of those people who look so hostile to God, they're only that hostile because God's tugging on their heart already. They're, they're resisting now, but the Holy Spirit's having his influence on them, leading them into truth. So only God knows the heart. And as I'm describing all of these things, maybe you can relate. Maybe you fit into one of these categories. Maybe you've been pushing God away in your heart for years. Maybe you've come here today to just pay lip service to God. Maybe you're, uh, maybe a family member dragged you out here. But you know in your heart that you're not right with God. So don't let that become you. Don't resist the Holy Spirit and his call on your life any longer. Let him speak to you today, revealing a truth that you probably already know, because it's what the Holy Spirit does. The truth is that you are, like me, a sinner, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that you need a Savior to redeem you of your sins. That Savior's name is Jesus. Trust him with your heart. Turn from your sins and believe the gospel. Don't leave here until you have settled your business with him today. Thanks be to God. Amen.